Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 10th of September, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Bit of an austere sky behind us, Mike, there, just looking a bit threatening. Uh, appropriate, maybe, for yep. what we see unfolding in the country. Perhaps. Uh, now, here's Sarah Gilbert, who has been interviewed by the Daily Telegraph. Uh, and the headline is mass booster vaccines unnecessary as immunity lasting well, says Oxford jab professor. Um, so what uh, what was she saying? We'll look at each situation. The immunocompromised and the elderly will receive boosters. Uh, but I don't think we need to boost everybody. Uh, do you feel like being boosted? Um, not by this crowd, Mike, because I don't trust a word they say and I don't trust the vaccines. Good. OK. Immunity is lasting well in the majority of people, she says. Um, and. Uh, well, Sajid Javid, on the other hand, uh, was saying, I'm, I'm awaiting final advice from the JCVI, but I'm confident a booster program will start later this month. So uh, what is the cause of this apparent split? Is it because uh, Sarah Gilbert isn't entirely satisfied with the results uh, following AstraZeneca's first and second doses? I don't know. Or maybe she's absolutely satisfied. No idea. But anyway, uh, what did the MHRA have to say? Well, here's June Rain. She said, uh, who's the chief executive, of course, she said, we know that a person's immunity may decline over time after their first vaccine course. Uh, I'm pleased to confirm that the COVID-19 vaccines made by Pfizer and AstraZeneca can be used as safe and as effective booster doses. And of course, she supplied lots of evidence to back up that statement. None. Indeed. Uh, and she went on to say, it will now be for the JCVI to advise on whether booster jabs will be given, and if so, what vaccines should be used. So uh, the press release that uh, the MHRA uh, published said that the current supply of uh, COVID-19 vaccines made by Pfizer and AstraZeneca has been authorised on an emergency use basis by the MHRA, uh, MHRA under Regulation 174 of the Human Medicine Regulations 2012. And the changes today have been made to the Regulation 174 product information only. Uh, both vaccines are also authorised under conditional marketing authorizations. But changes to these would follow a different procedure. Uh, vaccines covered by uh, conditional marketing authorizations can also be used as part of deployment program by off-label use uh, under a prescriber's direction, apparently. Um, so uh, I'm not clear what exactly was necessary in order to provide this conditional marketing authorization. Uh, I haven't seen any uh, description from the MHR about, MHRA about that. But the question is then, um, is, is this claim of uh, of absolute safety as the result of the CovBoost trials that have been going on, I think, since May this year uh, through the University of Southampton? Again, it wasn't mentioned in the MHRA's press release. So I would have thought if uh, if they'd had some massively positive results out of this particular uh, exercise, that would have been um, all over their uh, their documentation. One would have, <coughs> excuse me. One one would have thought so. Um, Really extraordinary as we work through that, Mike, because uh, the people with immuno problems, suppressed systems, are the ones being targeted with the vaccine, and the vaccine is producing these side effects, which we're going to get on to. And yet, at the same time, um, June Rain is saying, "Well, they're safe, and we should pump more of these things out." So the message becomes even ever more incoherent from this crowd of people as the days go by. And I think now that they're under pressure because the truth is coming up to the surface, that there's problems. They know that the public is becoming aware of these problems. And so this is smokescreen type stuff at the moment.
Um, but let's go over to the Daily Mail here. Um, really interesting headline. It says now the EU's vaccine watchdog says that AstraZeneca COVID's jab can trigger nerve disorder Guillain-Barre syndrome, but it's very rare and, and affects fewer than one in 10,000. So um, we're not too sure what the MHRA can do or say about this, but the EU has, has finally managed to admit that, yes, these very unpleasant um, syndromes are cropping up. And uh, what else does it then say? Well, don't worry about it because it's not a problem. It's not a problem unless you get it, and then it's a big problem. Uh, it seems to me, Brian, that if we're vaccinating 40, 50, 60 million people, uh, one in 10,000 is not very rare if you consider the absolutely horrendous effects of this particular syndrome. Well, um, we're going to mention again that, uh, of course, one of the people who contacted us in the early days was talking about their partner paralysed from the neck down, but the Daily Mail doesn't want to talk about those sorts of effects. And in this article, it's got the usual NHS advert, which says, well, you might get Guillain-Barre syndrome, but probably you're just going to get a little bit of pins and needles in your arm and leg. It could get worse. You could die, but it's nothing really to worry about. So the article, of course, is big on graphs. And this is the first one, cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome worldwide after COVID vaccination. Now, interesting your comment on this, Mike, because obviously here we've got the big figure, 595 million vaccinations administered. And then right down on the right in red is 833 is the Guillain-Barre cases. And of course, that um, graph is set out in that way to say, well, we don't really need to bother about 833 people because 595 million doses have been given with huge profits, of course, as a result. Uh, but what did catch my eye was this, that the next graph is this one, cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome in the UK after COVID vaccination. They've broken it down across three of the vaccines, AstraZeneca, Pfizer and Moderna. And what have we got? 48.7, 38.9. Uh, this is million doses, 48.7, 38.9 and 2.2. Um, but look at the total number of cases, 393, 44 and 3. So it seems to me that UK has got an extraordinary high proportion of the Guillain-Barre um, cases that are cropping up in the world. But of course, the Daily Mail doesn't pick up on this and uh, doesn't mention it at all. But that's an extraordinary fact. We seem to have about half. So half the, half the global cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome compared to what's that, uh, you know, 585 million total cases globally and yeah. what's that about 80 million case, uh, doses in the UK. So yes. it seems disproportionate. It seems very disproportionate. But uh, what caught my eye under this was this uh, little piece of text. Uh, let's see if we can blow it up on the screen. The above graph shows the number of Guillain-Barre cases detected after a COVID vaccine was administered in the UK. Britain's medical regulator, the MHRA, said it had not been able to confirm or rule out a potential link between AstraZeneca's jab and the condition. So, of course, the MHRA didn't say that. A human being said it. So we'll attribute it to June Ray because she's the chief executive. So we've not been able to confirm or rule out a potential link between AstraZeneca's jab and the condition. 
And I think we, we can say quite happily, because the evidence has not been brought forward in front of the public, that's because the MHR, MHRA have not investigated any possible uh, connections. They say that they've collected the safety data through the yellow card system. They admit that that system is incredibly inaccurate and maybe only 10%, maybe as little as 2 to 4% of the reports are actually collected. But then the, the data disappears into an MHRA uh, void and nothing is ever heard of it again, uh, apart from the raw statistics echoed back to the public saying, well, there's not a problem. And they can't even get those right. And they can't get those right. Yeah. So we know that the MHRA is not fully investigating. So when June Rain says, we can't really say whether there's a connection, we say, well, of, of course not, June, because you're not investigating to see whether there's a connection. And so we'll just put this in a little bit of different language. The MHRA, or June Rain, is claiming a role protecting public safety, but it's clear that uh, the MHRA is working closely with the pharmaceutical and vaccine companies and their commercial in interests remain the high priority. Now, if anybody doubts us on this, we're going to encourage you to really get into the MHRA website to investigate their relation with the vaccine and pharmaceutical companies and have a look at how their whole form of co-vigilance, that's supposedly the vaccine safety system, is in bed with the very pharmaceutical companies selling the vaccine in the first place. We leave that to our audience to dig into that research and we'll be very interested to uh, receive your feedback. But uh, the Daily Mail does more damage because embedded in the article was this video of uh, the famous Javid. And uh, what is this about? Well, their own headline spells it out. 12-year-olds can overrule their parents to have the COVID jab. Uh, this is very, very nasty uh, stuff here because we've got uh, Javid and uh, Sajid Javid and the Tory government undermining parental consent. And of course, if you undermine the parental consent, you're undermining the protections that the parent can give for their children. And why does the government want to do this? Because they want to get this experimental vaccine into the arms of the children. Um, so this video casually embedded, Mike, uh, overall, a very poor quality article from the Daily Mail. No key questions asked of the MHRA as to why they are not investigating vaccine safety. And we'd just like to remind our audience that, of course, it was uh, many months ago that the UK column led uh, with uh, the tragic story of uh, severe damage to a gentleman from Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, the last information we had on this man was that uh, he was paralysed from the neck down and uh, suffering a whole range of other conditions, uh, truly horrific. But as a result of us reporting this to the wider public as being in the public interest, uh, what happened, of course, uh, we were immediately banned from YouTube. So it appears to be that uh, uh, if you speak out about the dangers of vaccines, of course, you're going to be censored as quickly as possible. But never mind the risks, they want to get those jabs into the arms of the children. And this is uh, not only happening in UK. Um, 
Let's have a look at uh, Creepy Joe, as he's known, uh, because the BBC this morning had a little bit of uh, film clip that was so incredible. I think we need to have a little look at it. Look at it here. My message to unvaccinated Americans is this. What more is there to wait for? What more do you need to see? We've made vaccinations free, safe and convenient. The vaccine is FDA approval. Over 200 million Americans have gotten at least one shot. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost all of us. So please do the right thing, but just don't take it from me. Listen to the voices of unvaccinated Americans who are lying in hospital beds, taking their final breath saying, if only I'd gotten vaccinated, if only. It's a tragedy. Please don't let it become yours. I've got to say, I've seen some video uh, clips of that man, but on the creepy scale, I think that was probably nine out of well 10. Well up there, yes. Uh, Mike. Uh, so he's saying, well, what are people saying if, uh, if they haven't got that vaccine? Well, what is the gentleman saying who's paralyzed from the neck down, Mr. Biden? I think the key questions that the US public need to be asking in response to those two questions, let's remind ourselves what he said. What more is there to wait for? And what more do you need to see? Uh, well, it didn't take us uh, too long to come up with some suggested responses with the US public, but we think there should be full disclosure of vaccine adverse effects. Now, that's partly happening via the American VAERS system, but uh, just like UK, although information is being collected, there's no full disclosure of those adverse effects and the patterns to the wider US public and uh, the damage is simply being ignored. Um, we would suggest there's a full investigation into the safety of vaccines in the short, medium and long term. Medium and long term, very important there because all of the tests that have been done to date have very much been short term, uh, uh, so-called safety experiments and um, surveys. And so at the moment, it is not known what damage the vaccines are gonna cause in the medium and long term. Uh, we think we think the public should have a full explanation as to why experimental vaccines have been administered to the public. This is a fact. The vaccines are experimental. They're still within that experimental trial phase and will be for some considerable time. Most of the public are completely unaware of this. And lastly, uh, if we want to play the vaccine game, then obviously we need proof that vaccine efficacy is as claimed. So that's, that's proof, not computer models. Indeed, yes, yes. actual proof. Uh, that vaccine efficacy is as claimed so that people can make a properly informed choice. And uh, I'll just give a quick reminder. We did an interview uh, on, we uh, sorry, we did an advert for this lady, Christine Cotton on Wednesday, uh, but we've uh, specifically been talking to a very experienced statistician who's been working within the pharmaceutical um, system on her views on the accuracy of the VAERS data in America and this lady deeply concerned at the risk to the American public as a result of even the data that has been collected via that VAERS system. 
Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, uh, please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. You'd be very welcome and that would be very much appreciated. Um, also share material on the various platforms that we're still on, plus brand YouTube, Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, and so on. Okay, well, uh, an email that came in that was pretty interesting was this one. It was about NHS vaccination courses for nurses. It said, my partner who works at the NHS was recently asked to complete a flu vaccination course on ESR. This is the main nationwide electronic staff record system through which all nurses in the NHS are trained at the moment. They were shocked to find that since apparently August 2021, if not before, recombinant flu vaccines are to be offered to patients from 18 to 64 years old instead of the traditional egg-based ones. Also, there's some information regarding the informed consent that nurses should offer prior to administering a flu vaccine. Now, with this email did come a lot of information um, that's come through that NHS system. We weren't able to get all of that together for today's news. But just to give a little bit of a taster, uh, this is one section. We have actually blanked out this uh, young child's face, but this is a child's face that appears on the NHS system. And if we just uh, expand what's going on here, uh, this is this is part of the um, online uh, course where, where you can test yourself and questions are asked and you can score your own answers to those questions. But you get a choice of selection here. Joseph is three years old and has recently been diagnosed with leukemia. His mother has brought him for his first flu vaccine. Select each tab above to answer questions that suitable vaccine selection and sorry about suitable vaccine selection and dosage for Joseph. And uh, then this is the next bit. We've got A, one dose of live vaccine, B, two doses of live vaccine, C, one dose of inactivated vaccine, D, two doses of inactivated vaccine. And it then says on the right, D is correct, as Joseph will now be receiving chemotherapy for his leukemia and will therefore be immunosuppressed. Now, that's interesting, Mike, isn't it? Because earlier in the news, we've seen this drive to actually be vaccinating people who've got immunosuppression uh, problems. Uh, he should not be given the live intranasal flu vaccine. He needs to have inactivated vaccine instead. Instead, two doses of inactivated flu vaccine are recommended in order to achieve adequate antibody levels in younger children in clinical risk groups who have not received flu vaccine before. Now we've been we've been uh, concentrating on COVID-19, but it'd be very interesting to see the actual data that proves uh, that the answer given there by the NHS is indeed the correct one. Okay, now the, the Mail has a, an article uh, this morning, which is headlined, unvaccinated people in England are up to five times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID and 10 times more likely to die. New PHE data shows us Public Health England, of course, and they say that unvaccinated people are still up to five times more likely to be hospitalized if they catch the virus than double jabbed. New official data show to today admission rates for 60 to 69 year olds that had not got the vaccine was 94 hospitalizations per 100,000 last month, compared to just 19.1 amongst the vaccinated. And Public Health England's report shows people in their 50s are four times less likely to be admitted 
if they're jabbed with a hospitalization rate of 17 in the fully jabbed compared to 80 in the unvaccinated. And this sounds uh, uh, horrendous for the unvaccinated. And um, where's this mainly coming from? Well, it's the uh, SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern and variants under investigation, technical briefing 22, which re was released recently. Um, and uh, well, we're gonna look at this in a little bit more detail uh, in a second. But in parallel with that then, um, a little bit of video appeared, I believe on a Telegram uh, group uh, within the last couple of days, I suppose. I just want to play this. Uh, it's a, just an excerpt from it. Um, but just have a listen to this. Hello, good day and welcome. My name is Michael Manuel Chaves and this is Mad Mixed Conspiracies. Unless it's this summer when there's a vaccine rollout. And I'm just, I'm just a little bit perplexed that other people haven't picked up on this and aren't making a song and dance over it. Why ain't UK Column making a song and dance over the fact that 69 times more people died this 1st of September compared to last 1st of September. I did the 2nd of September, it's 17 times more died this September than last September when there was no vaccine. So the question is, why weren't we making a song and dance about it? And of course, uh, <laughs> We only comment on things when we're certain about what we're commenting on. But give me a prompt, though, to, to have a look, a closer look at the technical briefing and compare that with other data sources and see what the situation is. Now, he's saying, Michael is saying there that uh, uh, if you compare the 1st of September last year and the number of deaths, which I think was something around seven, uh, with what's go happened on the 1st of September this year, um, then the, the number of deaths was uh, significantly higher. Now, you can't necessarily make that uh, correlation, but what I wanted to uh, just do was to take people through some of the data uh, on this uh, uh, technical report and try to put some context on this and explain why the data in itself is really, well, really difficult to kind of uh, correlate. So have a look at this. This is uh, Table 4 from the, from the Public Health England document, and it says at the top there, Table 4, attendance to emergency care and deaths of sequenced and genotyped cases in England, 1st of February, 2021, uh, to the 29th of August, uh, 2021. Um, so that's uh, a, a particular time frame, 1st of February to the 29th of August. I'd appreciate that uh, is before the date that Michael's talking about, but nonetheless, uh, and this is what they show that for the alpha variant, uh, there were 1,617 deaths uh, in that period for the alpha variant. Now, uh, if you look at uh, deaths at the top right-hand corner of the, the table, there's a little, uh, a little sort of asterisk or a carrot there, uh, which uh, brings a definition. And it says the total deaths in any, so deaths in, the, in that table refers to total deaths in any setting, regardless of hospitalization status, within 28 days of a positive specimen date. So that for the alpha variant, they were claiming 1,700 cases or so. Or so. So let's continue on down through the, the uh, table. And for the Delta variant, if we look at all cases, the total number of deaths for the Delta variant from the 1st of February to the 29th of September, or 29th of August, sorry, was 1,798. And if we look through the other variants, um, there really aren't any, uh, so less than, fewer than five for, for most of these. And for the Mu variant, uh, which is apparently the next big one that's coming up because that's the one that they are claiming, 
is uh, demonstrating evidence of immune escape. Uh, no deaths during that period at all. So what do we have then? We have a total uh, number of deaths, according to Public Health England, uh, of people having received a positive PCR test within 28 days, or they've died within 28 days of a positive PCR test, total number of 3,459. Okay, let's have a look at the government's uh, coronavirus dashboard data then. Um, so here it is. This source is the UK government's coronavirus dashboard, and they have a nice graph. Let's have a look at it. And this is the time period from the 1st of February until the 29th of August. But when you count up all those blue bars, you get a total of 19,790. So which is it? Let's have a look, remind ourselves again. Public Health England is claiming 3,459 deaths, and the government is claiming 19,790 deaths. Which is it? It's not clear. Public Health England's document doesn't provide any caveats or something. The definition was total deaths in any setting, regardless of hospitalization status, within 28 days of a positive specimen date. Um, so let's look at another table from that Public Health England document. This is table three. Uh, and this is the number of sequenced and genotyped cases uh, by variant from the 1st of October. So the time frame is expanded now to the 1st of October to the 30th of August. And in this case, you can see uh, that you've got the number of sequenced cases and the number of genotyped cases. Now, the difference here is that they're using the sequencing in one case and genotyping in the other to identify variants. This is what they claim. Uh, and the, the difference in these two methods is basically cost. So it's cheaper to genotype than it is to, to sequence. Um, so you have a total number of cases of 492,725 delta cases, for example, 227,207 alpha cases is what they're claiming. Um, but then if you look at the number of cases on the government's coronavirus dashboard, well, actually this goes back further than the 1st of October but I'll show you what the actual figure is in right now. So Public Health England, as a reminder, you add up all their cases in their uh, report, it's 722,358 cases. Uh, if you look at the same period, October to the end of August, uh, the government is claiming 5,465,474 cases. So how can this be? This is very strange. So questions then? I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to say that, that the only assumption that I can come up with here is that Public Health England is taking a subset of the number of cases, putting them through various kinds of uh, sequencing or genotyping to identify. So they're not actually looking at the full data set. So if that's the case, then the first question that comes to my mind is, what methodology was used to select the cases for sequencing and genotyping? Because... If we don't know what the methodology was, how can the public know whether or not that selection process skews the results in favor of showing a worse outcome for the unvaccinated? This is the key thing as far as I'm concerned. How do we know that these cases that are selected by Public Health England, if this is what they're doing, are selected uh, in a balanced way right across the board that guarantees a, a specific outcome, you know, guarantees a general outcome, a, 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 that not, a, not a, a selected outcome, let's put it that way. But if it's not the case that uh, Public Health England is selecting cases and only genotyping and sequencing a fixed number of cases, then we've got to ask which of the total virus, the total coronavirus cases and total deaths from coronavirus figures, which is the correct set of figures? Is it the Public Health England figures 
or is it the UK government's figures? I don't know the answer to that. I find this extremely interesting. So to answer, well, well. so the first thing is, uh, here's uh, the, uh, the Mail article again. Luke Andrews is the health reporter for Mail Online. He hasn't asked any of these questions. I would like to challenge him right now to do that and come up with an answer and explain it for me. Uh, another organization that might want to do that because they're fighting bad information, it seems to me the worst information is coming from Public Health England, the government and the Office for National Statistics at the moment because there's no way to correlate the various data sets because there's no agreement between any of them. So come on, full fact, get your finger out. Let's go and find out where this bad information is coming from and what the explanation for it is. Uh, and uh, to Michael uh, Chabs or Chaves uh, 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 th that we saw in the little video clip there, I would say, you know, <laughs> Help us out. Well, it's, it's not. There isn't a possibility to help us out because this is the point. The infra, the data, the underlying data is rubbish, uh, and the 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 government, the mainstream media, and the various agencies can make up whatever uh, narrative they wish to make up at this point. It isn't possible to know what the explanation is. In fact, it isn't possible even to know whether the number of deaths on the first of September, twenty twenty one, when you compare them to the number of deaths. Uh, the, because this is the government attributing these deaths to coronavirus. Uh, you, you, so you've got a figure from the 1st of September 2021. You compare that to the 1st of September 2020. There's no way to know whether those are actually, any of those are actual coronavirus deaths, whether they've just been labeled as such by the government. And so there's no way to actually know whether there's any effect of the vaccine or otherwise uh, within those that data itself. So. So uh, there's a lot more work needs to be done there, but it really can't be done until the government and the agencies are actually demonstrating or showing how they're coming up with their figures and how we uh, can actually compare data. Just want to add to that, Mike, of course, we're looking at this from the point of view of does the, is the public able to understand what the truth is on these figures? But we've got the situation at the moment where the MPs will all will almost certainly not be aware of what the truth is with these figures because they're fed the same defective information. And in fact, it gets worse because what happens is the House of Commons Library supposedly does the donkey work of looking through the statistics and the data from Public Health England or MHRA, wherever it's coming from, and then producing briefing sheets for the MPs, usually in a style that would be suitable for a six or seven year old child. But of course, the, the spin with this data is taken through to the MPs. So if, if our viewers think that their MPs are in a, a better informed position over this data, I would actually say they're in a worse position because they're being fed uh, very um, uh, very precise, skewed information, which leads them to believe everything that's coming through the cabinet office. Well, this is a very good point. I mean, if you think back a couple of years when we were talking about uh, European Defence Union and Britain's potential involvement in that, uh, we were seeing people sending us responses from MPs on this issue, and the responses were all templated. So they were coming from information provided either by the House of Commons Library or by uh, junior, junior ministers within the, the Ministry of Defence. Uh, the same thing is now happening with questions that are being sent to MPs with uh, with uh, COVID-related questions. And we're getting uh, emails in from people with responses from MPs. And the responses are almost identical in each case because they are simply regurgitating what the House of Commons Library or 
whoever else uh, has uh, has told them to say. So, uh, you know, you need to always go back and challenge uh, for a second and third time if necessary. Yes. Um, now, we're going to switch topic to defence. And uh, one of the things we'd like to say is, of course, while public attention is so heavily focused on everything to do with uh, COVID and the so-called pandemic and the jab programme, uh, a whole range of things are going on in this country, which almost um, defy belief. Um, pull out of Afghanistan being one, how much equipment was left in Afghanistan. We still do not know the value of the UK equipment left, but we know in Iraq it was billions of pounds worth of British military equipment was simply left in Iraq, some of it to rot, some of it, of course, to be resold to make individuals and organisations, we don't know who they, they were, but making huge profit from that uh, equipment. So with that background, we were pretty interested to see this headline from the Daily Mail, a 3.5 billion fiasco armoured vehicle that left 310 soldiers injured faces the acts after causing hearing loss and joint pains. Um, this is an incredible headline. It's an incredible sum of money, 3.5 billion. Remember, we've got the government at the moment talking about putting up taxes. It's a government says it doesn't have money to do anything which is for the benefit of uh, mankind or certainly the British public. And here we've got a problem with 3.5 billion. Uh, let's have a look at some of the uh, comments in this article. This is Jeremy Quinn, the Minister for Defence Procurement. I cannot promise 100% we will find a resolution to these issues, but we're determined to work through with general dynamics. Now, uh, I was interested in the background of Jeremy Quinn, and I was intrigued to see that formerly, before he got involved with the Treasury, he was working with Deutsche Bank. So one would have thought that he'd be quite astute with money. Maybe it was the fact it was British money he didn't really uh, pick up on, but um, one would have thought that as a former Deutsche Banker, he would be pretty astute at money and contracts. But he said he couldn't promise 100% re um, resolution. He said, we will not accept an initial operating capability until we have a clear resolution to the issues on noise and vibration. I'm starting to smile as I say this, because as we get into this story, uh, what's going on here is unbelievable. Um, but uh, he needs a clear resolution. I think we could suggest what that is. We need a vehicle that works. Well, that would be good. You're paying 3.5 billion. It would be good to have a vehicle that works and which is fit for purpose. And that is what we're determined to deliver. Now, this program's been going on for years. It's not as if there's suddenly been a problem. Uh, there's an ongoing problem, but now it's sort of come to a, a head. Um, I've previously described Ajax as a troubled program. Is this banker language? I think it, I think it could be, Mike. You know, uh, We're just doing a little bit of quantitative easing. We're just pumping in a few billions, but it's, it's just to help the trouble. Um, but that does not mean that the problems are irresolvable. Well, let's look at the opinion from Mark Francois, who was former Conservative Defence Minister, he says the Ajax programme showed that mod procurement was, quote, completely broken. And he went on to say the vehicle is a, quote, steaming heap of institutional incompetence. And this is really the uh, comment that, that uh, alerts me to the fact that we have got serious breakdown 
in the operation of the government, the cabinet office, the procurement system. We've got billions of pounds being handed, uh, in this case, to an American company, General Dynamic, uh, Dynamics. But at the same time, we've got a government that's pleading it hasn't got money to sort out people who've lost their jobs through the disastrous COVID episode. So this is more of the country being taken apart from the inside. The evidence is there when we choose to look for it. So let's bring the vehicle back on screen. Um, we just decided to label this one a trail of disaster in its tracks and remind ourselves what we're dealing with. So 3.5 billion has already been given away to the Americans in down payments. Uh, we have got a few vehicles, uh, not very many as we'll see. Uh, 310 soldiers needing medical attention. I've put in injured because to need medical attention, they must have been injured. Uh, so 310 soldiers injured trying to drive a vehicle that's going to protect them at time of war. This is outrageous. Uh, but the situation is so bad that the army's not now giving soldiers to drive this vehicle. And General Dynamics has got to find its own drivers. Um, the vehicle has an inability to fire accurately on the move. That seems to be a little bit of a disadvantage for this vehicle. Uh, it's got an inability to reverse over obstacles. Well, if you can't fire your gun at somebody, I think you're going to be reversing quite a lot, Mike. Uh, so an in, uh, ability to reverse over obstacles would probably be pretty good. And here's the statistic. Just 26 of 589 vehicles have been delivered. Now, people should be on the phone to their MPs. They should be emailing. They should be knocking on their doors every day to ask how 3.5 billion could be handed over to this country, General Dynamics. Uh, it boasts on its website that it's a key supplier to the UK Ministry of Defence. Well, I think it deserves that title because we've seen what they're supplying. And uh, they boast a lot of things. We're a major player in Britain's high-tech economy and defence industrial base. Uh, more than 900 highly skilled jobs sustained at us. Sites in Oakdale and Merthyr, South Wales, with a further 200 at our sites in Hastings. So this is an American company trying very hard to say, well, actually, we're British and we're looking after you Brits. I know this is difficult to read, so I thought we'd help our viewers out. Let's blow a little bit of it up here. Uh, we've built a unique UK capability in the integration and digitization of armored fighting vehicles bringing together the best of the UK's automotive and defence engineering skills and successfully integrating 16,000 uh, of the entire range of the British Army's current fleet from Challenger tanks to Land Rovers. This doesn't fill me with uh, confidence, Mike, in view of what we've just seen. We invested more than 12 million in a new UK armoured fighting vehicle centre of excellence well, this is just outrageous. So they've been given 3.5 billion and they've taken 12 million out of it to, to make a PR centre? Yeah, their profits are pretty huge. There was some comment in the article about their profits. I can't remember what the figure was, but it's, it's billions. And we have established a new armoured fighting vehicle assembly integration and testing facility in South Wales to deliver Ajax to the British Army. So this is just disgraceful stuff. But what we need to understand is this is part of a program to dismantle Britain's own capability. So here's the Daily Mail 
from April 2017, where it says, tanks for the memories, Britain ends tanks production after 93 years, and future tank models will have German guns. And uh, if we get into the detail, I just did a little bit for our audience. This is uh, Hansard. Uh, we're back in 1963. And Mr. Norman Dodds is very upset about the close, closure of the Royal Ordnance Factory at Woolwich. And he talks about the indecent haste to close Britain's armaments manufacturing capability. I've inserted aircraft as well, because of course the same thing's been done to the aircraft industry. But while people are focused on COVID-19, what is happening behind the scenes is a huge raft of UK's industrial base is being dismantled and it's very obvious to see. Okay, uh, an interesting article in RT uh, this a day or two ago. This is uh, Shameless Blair Lectures the World on Military Strategy with no word of the deceit he engineered for an illegal assault uh, on Iraq. So this is, uh, this is by uh, uh, Damien Wilson. Uh, he is uh, a UK journalist, ex-Fleet Street editor. He says, uh, financial industry consultant and political communications special advisor to the UK and the EU. Um, he's calling Blair a war criminal who deserves to be put on trial. He said uh, his, that's Blair's, acquiescence to US demands for an attack on Saddam Hussein earned Blair the US Medal of Freedom from George Bush and 20 years uh, of uh, opprobrium from uh, British public, which has only increased as the years have passed um, on par with his own uh, immense personal wealth. A poll in 2017 found a third of the British public would like to see Blair put on trial as a war criminal, I think uh, that is probably an understatement of the truth. But nonetheless, uh, it's an interesting article. Do have a read at it. And it's very interesting because, of course, uh, Blair started this whole issue of, uh, can we say this, uh, of uh, uh, Islamic terrorism in the country. Because if uh, we hadn't got involved in these countries in the first place, uh, we wouldn't really have this problem. With lies of weapons of mass destruction and his support, of course, for the 9-11 so uh, story. So now that we're out of Afghanistan, uh, we've now got uh, the rhetoric starting to build to make us fearful of the next terrorist attack. And this is Ken McCallum uh, from MI5. Uh, and uh, he it has been saying that the terrorist threat to the UK, I'm sorry to say, is a real and enduring thing. He's particularly concerned uh, that uh, uh, now that uh, Afghanistan has fallen to the Taliban, uh, that is likely to have emboldened UK terrorists. Uh, he said, uh, he told the BBC, this was, uh, I think, on the Today programme, uh, that while terrorism, uh, or at least the threat from terrorism, wouldn't change overnight, uh, there could be a morale boost for terrorists. So they get a morale boost and they're, they're coming back. Well, I think they got a morale boost by all the free equipment, the military equipment that was left to them in, in Afghanistan, right? Um, he said, the terrorist threat to the UK, I'm sorry to say, is a real and enduring thing. There's no doubt that events in Afghanistan will have heartened and emboldened some of those extremists. Uh, and so being vigilant to precisely these kinds of risks is what my organization is focused on with a threat to uh, with a range of other threats. Terrorist threats tend not to change overnight in the sense of directed plotting or training camps or infrastructure, the sorts of things that Al-Qaeda employed in Afghanistan at the time of 9-11. Uh, these things do inherently take time to build. And the 20-year effort to reduce the terrorist threat has been from Afghanistan has been largely successful. But what does happen overnight, even though those distracted, uh, directed plots and centrally organized bits of terrorism take a bit longer to rebuild, overnight you can have a, path, uh, 
sorry, a psychological boost, a morale boost to extremists already here or in other countries. So uh, we've got to start uh, worrying about terrorism again immediately. You so this get, is... get fearful because we've got, uh, of course, the, the big problem of, of flu, COVID and uh, uh, other viruses over the winter, plus terrorism, plus also, of course, the sky is falling down as a result of climate change. So uh, stress the nation. Certainly. The more the nation stress, the more they can manipulate the policy. So don't pay any attention to the fear mongering of these people. Now, uh, the other day, uh, Brian, you were talking about the uh, Sandhurst sister Sisterhood um, who were trying to save Afghans. Uh, and of course, uh, you have uh, uh, this lady uh, on screen at the moment, uh, whose name is uh, Alice Brummage. That's the one. Thank you. And she was making phone calls to people in Afghanistan uh, during the evacuation, apparently, and directing or uh, ordering military personnel on the ground there. Yeah, uh, incredible, absolutely incredible story. She does look very nice in this picture, though, with her combat gear and earrings. The two go together so well, I think. Yes. Well, look, thank you very much to the person that uh, sent this through to us. But uh, uh, somebody pointed out that, of course, this is the same lady that left a well, it was described in this article in the mirror as a loaded gun, but it was loaded with blanks. Uh, and the headline here is Kazi Uncovered. So this was uh, back in 2005 uh, when she was working for the uh, Special Investigation Branch of the Royal Military Police. She was on some kind of training operation um, and uh, got, uh, well, as they described, caught short. Caught short. Uh, and so she uh, headed into uh, a supermarket to use the loos there and just happened to leave her uh, holster and gun behind. As, as, you, as do. you do. Yeah. Uh, and this started a, a nationwide search for the for the gun. Um, so uh, this is the kind of uh, uh, person that we're dealing with here. And uh, well, know. I just wanted to add to that that uh, I think if you do a little bit of work on what she's up to now, she's actually an NLP NLP trained uh, future leader. So she's training all sorts of organisations in leadership, uh, which I think is a really fantastic contrast between. Uh, her sisterhood work, the gun, and uh, showing people how to do it, really. Yes. Now, if uh, the head of MI5 is telling us we've got to be worried about ex Islamic uh, extremism, of course, we've also got to remember we've got to be worried about uh, right-wing extremism as well. And, of course, what uh, is constituting right-wing extremism these days? Well, of course, it's anti-lockdown protesters and so on. So here's Sky News, uh, and the headline is COVID-19 anti-vaccine posters found with razor blades attached to the back of them to cut people as they're taken down, Union says. Um, so this is the RMT, the Real Maritime and Transport Union, has called for uh, the courts to take the hardest possible line when dealing with the perpetrators behind the dangerous posters. Uh, and Mick Lynch, uh, who's the head of the RMT, said, any anti-vax conspiracy theorist resorting to this disgusting practice of lacing their propaganda with razor blades needs to know that they will face criminal prosecution. Well, the question is, who put them up? Of course, nobody knows who put them up. Were they there? Were they actually put up at all? In fact, uh, Transport for London has said they're not aware of any incidents of posters with blades attached to them being found. So where did this story so come where from? Where did then? this story come from? Is it real? I don't know. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, they would be pretty disgusting if somebody did put such a poster up. But the point is... But uh, Mick, Mick Lynch from our RMT Union is prepared to push this story then. Yes. And I would just suggest uh, that perhaps it's related to this story, which, of course, from the BBC, we highlighted this a couple of weeks ago, from the BBC's anti-disinformation, whatever she is, uh, Mariana Spring. Uh, where is the anti-lockdown movement headed? Uh, and she was uh, pushing 
um, a, a piece of video, a little short report, um, which was absolutely suggesting that the anti-lockdown movement is some kind of gateway to, to right-wing extremism and that people that are involved in the anti-lockdown movement are heading in the direction of becoming criminals themselves. This is a narrative which is building and this Sky News article and this story about uh, razor blades on the backs of uh, posters uh, feeds into that narrative. And I would just suggest that perhaps we might be a little skeptical about uh, about it. Yeah, I'll just add but with Mariana Spring, of course, she thinks she knows what's happening in the wider world. It's obvious she doesn't because she's in the bunker of the BBC. But her Twitter page enables people to send her factual information documents um, real analysis, some of which we've we've taken people through, uh, ask her, provide that evidence and then ask her the question. Keep it absolutely evidence and factually based and put her under pressure with questions. Um, there's a lot she can do to help Mariana Spring actually think a bit instead of just being a, a BBC propagandist. Uh, now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we mentioned uh, this lady, Chloe Smith, the Minister for the Constitution, and uh, she was uh, talking about the state of democracy in the UK and the state of democracy generally. And she said, uh, for an elected politician, the second American president, John Adams, was strikingly pessimistic about democracy. Remember, it never lasts long. He once warned that soon wastes, exhausts and murders itself. Uh, those adversaries favour control, corruption and conformity. We fight for freedom, responsibility, enterprise and tolerance, was what she was saying. Um, so that was a couple of weeks ago, but it fascinates me now because the question then is, you know, what is in these people's minds about uh, democracy and the state of democracy? Because, of course, they're now putting in a bill, an elections bill, uh, which is there to keep our elections free and fair and will ensure democracy across the UK continues to thrive. So they've got to put more legislation in place to what? To counter uh, people that are attempting to undermine democracy in the UK as it got to the point that there's so much cynicism about democracy in the UK that people are deliberately going out to undermine the elections. Uh, it's not clear exactly what's going through her mind. But anyway, she uh, 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 set out uh, in the Commons the government's plans to update electoral law. Uh, it's uh, delivering apparently on a UK-wide manifesto commitment and it's going to help safeguard elections and ensure democracy remains secure, fair, modern and transparent. And if you've finished throwing up into the nearest bucket after I read that bit out. Uh, uh, the new law is going to uh, strengthen action against intimidation of voters by improving and updating the offence of, oh, of undue influence uh, and uh, prevent people from being coerced into giving up control over their vote. It's going to toughen sanctions for those convicted of intimidating political candidates, campaigners uh, and elected representatives. And there's going to be a new digital imprints regime. So currently, if you're producing a political pamphlet or a leaflet for an election, you've got to say clearly uh, on that uh, leaflet who's paid for the leaflet and uh, who it represents. So that's going to be taken into the online world as well. Uh, and then there's going to be uh, legislation to reduce the potential for someone to steal another person's vote by introducing sensible safeguards for postal and proxy voting uh, and a requirement to provide photographic identification uh, when you go to vote. Um, so clearly they're very concerned that there's a, a concerted campaign to undermine the uh, democratic process, or is it that they're worried that- well, it'll uh, be the Russians probably. Well, indeed, indeed, that's exactly it. Yeah, uh, well, a lot of people picked up on this uh, particular interview, which is Victoria Derbyshire 
uh, interviewing Paul Gambaccini and uh, a lot of people very motivated by it and sent it in to us saying that they think this is really excellent and there's real progress being made. Um, we're not so sure and uh, we, we thought we'd devote a little bit of time at the end of the news to having a look at this clip and uh, giving you our thoughts on what's going on. So let's have a look at the first segment. Uh, we've divided the interview into three parts. It's not very long anyway, just over six minutes, but let's have a look at how it develops. A group of people who say they have been victims of metropolitan police corruption and malpractice have written an open letter calling for the Met Police Commissioner Cressida Dick to be replaced in her role. The group of seven includes Stephen Lawrence's mother, Baroness Lawrence, DJ Paul Gambaccini and Lady Britton, who is the widow of the Conservative Home Secretary Leon Britton. In the letter, they say, our individual experiences are very different, but we have all been victims of the incompetence and malpractice which pervades the leadership of the Metropolitan Police Service. Well, let's talk to Paul Gambaccini now. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us. Um, tell us why you have signed this letter. I have signed this letter because I believe in its contents. It's that simple. Each of us who was present at that five-hour meeting that I will never forget had thought originally we must be the only people in the world this is happening to because this is so stupid. This is so obviously unjust. But by talking to each other, either on telephone or via email, we came to notice similarities in our experiences. And during the past few years, we have become bound to one another, uh, even though we come from different walks of life and in a couple of cases, different political parties. Uh, we've all found that the leadership of the Metropolitan Police is breathtakingly corrupt and non-honest. Uh, it covers up at all times. It's so shocking that the nation wants to know the full truth of the Stephen Lawrence case, but Cressida Dick will not allow it. The nation now wants to know the full truth in the Daniel Morgan case, and Cressida Dick will not allow it. Well, sorry, Cressida. It's time you started walking the long, lonesome highway. You are, like the emperor of famous fable, naked, because we all know that you've blocked the truth and been very economical with the truth in all of our cases. Okay, well, I mean... The Met would certainly push back on, on your statement that they well, cover of up. It would because you Sorry, are let, with the BBC let, and you always. Please let me finish, Mr. Gambaccini. No, 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 no. No, I'm not going to have this. When I was last on your show, you put up on screen a statement from the CPS without telling me that you were going to do some. And I went in the background. Because that is my lying noise. Right. Of course, can I, can, may I speak? What is the point of interviewing me if you're only going to give them airtime? This is ridiculous. All throughout the witch hunt, the BBC was on the side of the wrongdoers. And this will come out, by the way. Don't think that we are going to go away. We haven't come for the BBC yet because we're doing the Met now. But in the years to come, boy, the truth about the BBC complicity in the witch hunt will be known. Well, pretty... Um... Uh, motivated Paul Gambaccini there, but uh, I think we need to ask some questions. Of course, this uh, interview doesn't give any details about this amazing five-hour uh, meeting that he's talking about, so we don't know what actually took place there. Uh, but what an interesting mix of people, because we've got Paul uh, Gambaccini, we've got uh, uh, Liam Britton's um, widow, 
Um, we've got uh, Daniel Morgan. Uh, we're talking about the Stephen Lawrence case. I think Cliff Richard is in the mix somewhere. Uh, so we've got some really serious events that have taken place across Met policing um, from people being assaulted and killed through to allegations of sexual misconduct made. Uh, suddenly this group of people have come together and now amazingly high profile exposure in a very antagonistic way against the BBC. I, I'm not too sure what's happening here, Mike, but I'm, I don't get a comfortable feeling but by the delivery from Paul Gambaccini. It's like he's suddenly woken up to the fact he lives in a corrupt world. It's affected him. Um, what about the time when we had all the other people speaking out about the fact that the Met Police were not defending um, youngsters from child abuse? Uh, well, I think what you're saying there is someone who has, uh, he himself has been on the receiving end of allegations. Uh, he claims that he was, uh, I think there's quite a bit of justification for his particular uh, points about the behaviour of the Met Police. Your point about the fact that uh, uh, he wasn't speaking out when other people were making similar claims, I think is is fair. But isn't this a problem that we have in society in general, that people only start getting motivated when Once it, affects it affects them, them directly? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I would say, I would say in response to this clip and uh, what Paul Gambaccini is saying, we need to be very, very careful in how uh, this letter is, is in fact conflating, I think it's conflating issues mm. to deal with the Met Police in a way which will not be helpful to people of lesser profile who've experienced terrible treatment by the Met Police uh, neglect. Um, I'm going to mention John Wedger straight away, the very brave ex-Met policeman who tried to speak out on the fact that uh, when he warned of the abuse of children, his warnings were simply brushed off and then he was threatened and then it got to the stage where he was kicked out of his job in order to keep him quiet. And we also know that his evidence into the ICSA child abuse inquiry was heavily censored uh, so that a lot of the meat of his testimony never reached that individual inquiry. So I think we just sort of say, yeah, Paul Gambaccini, very unhappy man, and maybe he's fully justified to be so angry. Um, but what we don't want this to do is to start to take the ground away from other people who have got equally valid complaints against the Met Police. So let's have a look at the second clip, which is the follow on as this interview progresses. You stated that the Metropolitan Police cover up at all times. Cressida Dick wasn't the commissioner when you were initially investigated and you spent a year longer actually waiting for them to realise there were no charges that were going to be brought against you. Why do you want her specifically to stand down? Because I launched my legal case against the Met the day she took office. It was called Paul Gambaccini v. the Commissioner of Metropolis. She was the Commissioner of Metropolis. It took three and a half years for me to win my case. As she and the Met postponed it as long as they could until what they call a court steps agreement, where the only thing left was to go to trial in which Sir Richard Enriquez, author of the Enriquez report into false allegations, 
said that he would support me. And so the Met gave in at the very last minute. Three and a half years of non-honesty from this woman. I never knew Pinocchio had a sister until Cressida Dick became commissioner. The other people that are involved in uh, signing this letter, Baroness Lawrence, I mentioned, um, the brother of Daniel Morgan, Alistair Morgan, you mentioned. They have their different reasons for not wanting her to continue in this job. Uh, the speculation is that her contract will be extended for a couple of years. But what the Home Office say to us is that the appointment of the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police Service is a formal process which will be confirmed in the proper way. The Mayor of London and the Metropolitan Police have declined to comment. This is a marker in the sand from you and the other people that you definitely do not want her contract to be extended. Of course we don't. She's a hack. She's an organization hack. So that's, uh, that's the end of that little clip. And uh, I think fair to, uh, to be fair to Paul Gambaccini, of course, it's been regularly reported in, in uh, the wider press um, that Cressida Dick has, has blocked and stalled these investigations. So what he's talking about there is perfectly correct. Um, she was also gold commander, if I remember correctly, for Domenizis. Yes, she was in charge of that operation, which resulted in the death of uh, Domenizis, yes. Yeah. And, uh, of course, she was never really brought to account for that. We should also remember that Cressida Dick is a common purpose trained future leader. So uh, she's come through that particular charity to be a um, supposedly a global leader for the future. Uh, but when it comes to transparency, she doesn't appear to be uh, that good at producing the information. So let's look at the, the final clip where it all begins to get a little bit out of hand. Now, I'm sorry to have to say negative things about people. This is not why I went into public life. Uh, I was only ever accused because I was on television and somebody thought, oh, I'll have a shot at him. The point is, uh, the Metropolitan Police, Hogan Howe and Cressida Dick, have obfuscated the truth from the people of this country. If Britain is going to be a first division country after Brexit, it must have a first division police service. And at the moment, it's a third rate Stasi. Right. Ask why she blocked my case for three and a half years, if you're so eager to give the police point of view. Sorry, I'm, I'm not eager to give anybody's point of view. My job, as you know, as a journalist, is to reflect the opinions, the statements of people who are not here to defend themselves when they're being criticised in the way that you have criticised oh, this morning. Why didn't that happen with the BBC and Operation Midland when we had uh, Tom Sanders... Uh, uh, pardon me, I'll turn that off. Um, when we had um, <coughs> when we had uh, Carl Beach given free reign of the six o'clock news, why uh, was Harvey Proctor being interviewed by James Nochte on the Today program with a BBC newsman on the phone to the Metropolitan Police in the control cubicle? The ultimate violation of studio sanctuary, if you ask me. Okay, why obviously. I've no, oh, I've no idea if that's true oh, or not. Please don't shout at me. I've no idea if that's true or not, Mr. Gambaccini. I've no reason to, I've no reason to doubt you, but I'm just. Harvey Proctor told me. Okay, I'm just saying I've no, I've no idea if that's okay. true or not. Well, that's obviously because, uh, you know, Fran Unsworth has taken life's last leap, and a good thing too because she was on the wrong side with the Cliff Richard thing. And, not, and she here is also not here to defend herself. So. I'm going to pause well, that. Let's go head to head. I will go head to head with Fran Unsworth in any public forum, and I will dissect her like a frog without ether. OK, I'll pass your invitation on to her. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning. Thank you. Uh, Paul Gambaccini.
Well, there, there you have it. So Paul Gambaccini getting pretty motivated and, and I can understand a lot of it because the BBC and Victoria Derbyshire sitting there, uh, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth, basically saying, well, my job as a journalist is to reflect the opinions of, of people who are not here. Uh, BBC's not interested in the truth. We've just got to play away down the middle, play the sides off. Uh, but of course, the BBC never did any of the true factual reporting over Carl Beach. It never reported accurately over the statements made by um, um, the senior policeman, Mike Veal, when he was investigating uh, Ted Heath. And if we give a UK column example that when we were talking about the abuse of youngsters at Oxford and Cherwell Valley College, uh, Radio 5, um, without interviewing a single one of the youngsters that had experienced that abuse, uh, simply said that they'd spoken to the local authority, Oxford uh, County Council and Oxford City Council, and there was no abuse. They didn't want to interview the youngsters. And they even accused the UK column of controlling those youngsters after we said uh, to BBC Radio 5 that they were very nervous and there would have to be a gentle process to get them engaged with the BBC reporters. So uh, I've got to say that whilst I wasn't terribly impressed with Paul Gambaccini's overall delivery, uh, I think his anger at the BBC was justified. Mm. Indeed. Uh, right, let's move on to the COP26 then. And uh, well, here's, sorry, here's, uh, here's Alex Sharma. Um, and well, you'll be glad to know that although the COP26 has been postponed for one year, uh, the government is all too aware climate change has not taken time off. So it hasn't taken time off. It wasn't on put on furlough uh, and didn't end up at homeschooling or anything like that. Uh, so as a result, the government is working tirelessly with their partners, including the Scottish government and the United Nations, to ensure an inclusive, accessible and safe summit in Glasgow with a comprehensive set of mitigation measures. Um, so what will those be? Well, that includes an offer from the UK government to fund the required quarantine hotel stays for registered delegates arriving from red list areas. Do you think the, those people will be put in the same types of quarantine hotels as, as uh, the likes of you and I would be? What I'm told that if, if you know, they break the rules, they're not going to get fed, as yes. we've seen with the Australian. No, I, I think this will be more of, uh, of the... Uh, uh, meeting of the loveys down in Cornwall where there will they will simply be acting as if there was no problem everybody else in lockdown uh, they will be swanning around some luxury hotel I would think yes okay and uh, to vaccinate the accredited delegates who would be un otherwise unable to get vaccinated so uh, don't worry that'll be an offer for them as well uh, the government apparently is not mandating vaccination for the COP26 because of course priorities um, and uh, but they are encouraging vaccination um, so uh, so that's that what else are they saying uh, well they uh, also announced uh, on Wednesday I think this was the green heat network fund uh, you know what a heat network is uh, in this case I don't right no well basically uh, the idea is that we've all get a, all got to get uh, our gas boilers out of our homes oh, right. uh, and we replace those with a sort of centralized big gas boiler for our local community. That's a little bit Soviet in my book. This is exactly what it is and in fact uh, you know if you went to the Eastern Bloc uh, after just after the fall of Berlin Wall one of the most striking aspects of it was the fact that everybody had exactly the same radiators and there's exactly the same pipes in their homes and so on uh, because it was all 
centrally sourced heat. Uh, and of course, then there were rules. For example, the heat doesn't get switched on until it's been below zero for uh, two or three days. Yeah. And then there are rules about when the heat gets switched off again. Um, so, you know, there are a couple of uh, heat networks already in operation in the UK. And at this point, they don't seem to be uh, uh, experiencing those kinds of rules. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, heat networks are there to supply heat uh, to, to uh, buildings. Uh, and it's supposed to be much more environmentally friendly. Uh, so where does that take us? Well, that takes us to uh, uh, the British patient capital, because this is who's funding uh, this new thing. Um, so uh, the Department of Energy, sorry, Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy investing £320 million pounds into uh, heat networks. Uh, and uh, this organisation is the organisation that is going to be uh, distributing that money because it's all about fueling innovation and powering growth. Our long-term vision is for more homegrown and fully funded high-growth companies to fulfill their potential to be right. successful players on the global stage. It's nothing about keeping granny warm then. Uh, no. Uh, now, uh, some people may be uh, surprised at the name, British Patient Capital. Uh, the, the, the word patient there is in the sense of, uh, uh, you know, your willingness to be patient. Uh, so it, your, the investment goes in for a longer period of time. Uh, and then... Finally, on this uh, particular thing, we'll have a look at, uh, at Rishi Sunak because he's uh, pushing the Future Fund breakthrough. The Future Fund colon breakthrough is uh, a special brand here. It's going to help drive our economic recovery. It's going to produce lots of people with no faces, as you saw there uh, on their cartoon. This is their plan for jobs, uh, £375 million, pounds, uh, which is uh, opening for applications for, to help high-growth Research and development, intensive companies bring game-changing technologies to market. Yes, I see the look on your face there, uh, Brian. So the scheme will span across the UK's world-class industries, including life sciences, quantum computing, clean technology. Uh, it's pushing the Green New Deal. It's pushing, uh, of course, uh, genomic sequencing and so on. Uh, to be eligible, businesses must have commitments of 70% of an investment round from private investors uh, with a track record of financing. Uh, innovative companies such as venture capitalists. So actually, the government isn't putting the money in unless you have, uh, they're only putting in 30%, the, the, unless you have a private investment as well. Um, so this sort of reminded me a bit of uh, of their sort of infrastructure infrastructure pipeline. It's a video on screen. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry. I just, I just thought there were some tremendous images. That well, if you, well if you want to continue, actually... continue <laughs> looking at that, but... But anyway, uh, I, I thought we'd seen enough of Rishi there for a second. But but anyway, the point is, like the infrastructure pipeline, uh, they've got all these projects that they say they're going to fund, uh, but it's all dependent on private finance uh, coming as well, which uh, often doesn't. Um, so uh, we take this with a pinch of salt in a sense. But nonetheless, it's once again, the government reiterating their support, particularly for the life sciences at this particular time. Yeah, well, it's great, isn't it? The British Business Bank and their begging for other people to put some money in as well because they haven't got any money. But presumably, if they took the $3.5 back out of the Ajax uh, project, they could deal with some of this straight away. Indeed. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So we'll leave it there. I think we're going to leave it there. We're going to say thank you very much to everybody for joining us. Thank you uh, for UK viewers and also the overseas viewers. We know that overseas viewers are now growing. Thank you very much. Uh, keep spreading the word. Keep sharing the information that we're putting out. That's why we do it. And uh, we'd just like to say thank you very much for the people 
who've recently taken out subscriptions. Um, if you've got a friend, bring them along too, because it all helps UK Column. And I think we can also say that behind the scenes, we've got some very exciting improvements uh, going ahead at the moment. We've got some extra assistance on board and uh, we're looking forward to, um, what do we say, improving the quality of our production. Yes. So uh, we'll leave that there with a smile on our face and say, don't be drawn into the uh, government's fear propaganda. Make sure that you get out and do some good things uh, to keep yourself in a good place. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.